Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Hey y'all, and welcome to Touchy Subjects Podcast, the podcast that aims to break the silence that tends to come with conversations around domestic and sexual violence. I'm Sean, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, horror movies. And I am joined by my friend today, Michael Beekhouse. So thank you for joining me again for the podcast, Michael. No, thanks so much for having me back again. I think it was about a year or so ago that I was uh, that I was here last. Yeah, um, and since that point, we've had multiple conversations about horror movies and giving recommendations back and forth. So I figured with spooky season right upon us, it makes the best sense to have a conversation now because horror movies are really good at providing us with a commentary on the life that we live in, but also giving people the opportunity to experience something scary in a safe setting. Absolutely. I would agree completely. And I think, um, I think, yeah, it's um, in some ways the horror genre, I would say, is a, a good toolkit um, for, for learning how to deal with or learning how to be prepared for some of the challenges that life throws your direction. So really kind of just jumping into the discussion then, because I can't wait to have the discussion. What was really <laughs> what was one of the like earliest memories that you have of like of horror, like films, like a horror experience that really got you kind of like into your love of horror? So for me, I, I think a lot of people will probably be able to relate to this, but for me, it was video rental shops um, in the 1980s or certainly the late 80s, the early 90s. Um, this is probably going to be lost on people that are only really used to streaming services. But back then, during the VHS era, you had absolutely phenomenal, gratuitously over the top uh, video cover artwork, um, video descriptions, you know, descriptions of films on the back of the cases. Um, and yeah, you, you could not pass that section of the video shop as a four-year-old or a five-year-old and not just be magnetically drawn towards this bright, over-the-top garishness. And the one that stuck with me the most, which again probably won't mean much to a lot of people, was the cover of a film by an Italian horror director called Michael Suave called The Church. And the artwork, which is still to this day, I think, the most over-the-top horror film artwork I've ever seen was this mass of bodies that was arranged in this sort of demonic head shape in front of a church um, and it was so striking because growing up in this sort of quaint English countryside the church was this you know bastion of sweet innocent goodness and here you had this VHS cover that had just turned it into something absolutely monstrous and nightmare inducing it's kind of like the first time you see a dead dog or a dead cat in the road it's just this completely different take on something that had um, positive connotations um so yeah that that was the first thing that kind of stuck with me and resonated with me um particularly because i didn't really have permissive parents so they would always try and steer me away from the horror genre so i would without being able to actually watch the films i could only just imagine what was going on behind the covers so mm-hmm. yeah, that was me. How about you? That like really just like that imagining though of like what's going on behind the cover is really kind. It's really interesting because that's the point of a lot of horror movies is like mm-hmm. the what's coming next. So 
one of the things like I love about like Psycho is that Alfred Hitchcock won't show you any of the things that are happening because you can't show that at the time when he was making the film. Mm. But it's the idea of like what it, what does that look like? It's using your imagination to make the thing scarier. Um, so I just really love that. But for me, it's my parents were kind of the opposite because my dad also loves like scary movies. My dad loves like old B monster movies and oh, nice. like like old horror and stuff. So I remember, I want to say it's the first horror movie I remember ever kind of watching like passively. Like I wasn't in the room watching it, but like I was like, I was in the room watching it. Um, and it was Children of the Corn. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. And... Not, not one that's critically well remembered, but definitely a vivid one. Yeah, no. Um, so this is one of them, and it's I can't remember what the exact scene is, but I feel like there was a cabin at one, like a like an old shack, um, and like this, they were trying to like get into the shack or something, and like there's a lot of knocking happening, and at that moment, a vacuum cleaner salesman knocks <laughs> on the front door of the house, and it scared the hell out of me. Like, I remember running into the kitchen, hiding behind the counter and just like peeking over to like see like who was coming into our house. And I was I was there for like 15 minutes while my mom and dad listened to this guy try to sell them a vacuum. I was like, you couldn't have timed that better to have that just be that. It's a core memory in my head now. Um, I was going to say, was there anything particularly sinister about him or his voice or uh, his demeanor that added to the, the horror of the moment? So I think it was the fact that because I'm I would just been watching a horror movie and it's your imagination will start making mm. things up. Like I'm hearing this guy who stereotypical like masculine voice just in the living room. Like I don't <laughs> remember what he was saying, but I remember I'm like, that's a scary guy. <laughs> oh yeah. So I'm like I can't. I was like, what's what's gonna happen? Like what's he doing? Like what's going on? And I just waited. So I'm like. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to find out, Like that's going to, if he's hurt, if he's hurting my mom and dad, he's definitely going to hurt me because they're way bigger than me. That That's definitely the thing with horror movies. And I think situations like that, it's like, you don't really want to keep watching, but like, you feel like you have to, because what's going to happen if you don't? Oh yeah. Well, it's also, they, they just breed paranoia. Like my yeah. fiance makes fun of me all the time because if I walk into a bathroom with shower curtains closed, I open the shower curtains before I do anything <laughs> in there. <laughs> so I'm like. I don't know what's going to be behind there. I also don't know if I'm going to be able to fight it off, but I would just like to know. Yeah. Forearm, forewarmed is forearmed. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's like, I also remember Darkness Falls as one of like the scariest movies I remember watching as a kid. And I was probably like 10 years old at the time. So I'm sure I've had other interactions with horror prior to this point. But I remember my friend Derek and I watching this movie in his basement. And like we're it's pitch dark in the basement. We're on this couch in front of this like old, like fat TV. Like think of like a scream TV where it's like literally like a giant square. Yeah. Screen, yeah. Like a, a ring, like in the ring where there's giant square TVs. Like that was what it was. And we're just down there watching Darkness Falls. And one of the things that they mention in it is that if a kid loses all of their baby teeth, the tooth fairy would come after you. Oh. And I remember sitting there with my friend Derek counting our teeth. <laughs> to see like how much time like just to see how long we had to hold off before like the tooth fairy would come after us i remember trying i remember like having one baby tooth left and i think i was like 11 or 12 and i'm like don't fall out <laughs> just hold on that'd be the absolute worst film to be like finding yourself eating a toffee during or something like that if you're like, oh god this was a bad this is a bad snack choice it's just imagining watching like watching it while you have a loose tooth and you're just like 
I'm not going to play with that. <laughs> I'm just going to really hope. <laughs> There's interesting. I, I had a very similar experience. Um, my parents were, were, as I said, really weren't into you know watching horror films at all. Um, but I remember being around my next door neighbor's house and his parents had gone out. And we were probably about, I think maybe six or seven or thereabouts. Um, and he just casually mentioned that he had Friday the 13th, part seven, Jason Lives um, on tape because they'd recorded it off the television. He was like, oh, do you want to watch it? And you're like, yeah, okay, that sounds fun. And like, it's great when you're sat there with your mate and it's daylight and the sun's coming through the window. But then to get afterwards, to get back from his house to mine, I had to cut through a stretch of countryside. And of course, all the Friday the 13th films take place in summer camps. So yeah, just from that point on, I would say for the next month, I had to sleep with the light on because you're like, dude is totally in the trees and he's waiting for darkness to fall so he can come at me with a machete but it's it's interesting though because that's that feels like a very common experience for people who watch horror movies or like especially those who watch them a lot is -hmm. that i distinctly remember watching a horror movie at one of my friend's house and driving home late at night after we had watched it because Mm -hmm. genius idea (laughs) and i remember looking in my rearview mirror and there was no cars on the road behind me, so there's no way that my rearview mirror could light up. And I swore I saw a face that wasn't mine oh. in the rearview mirror, like just sitting in the backseat of my car. And the rest of that way home, I am as close as I can be to that steering wheel, <laughs> thinking that that's going to keep me just a little bit safer. I drove faster to get home. As soon as I got home, I didn't even lock the car. I jumped out of the car and ran inside. I'm like, I need lights. I need to be safe. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. I think that this is where um, it, you definitely have the edge over us in England because you you have these wide open spaces where you can just go for miles without seeing another person. Like you just don't get that at all in England. Um, so, yeah, I can only imagine what it must be like to uh, to watch something like um, The Hitcher and yeah, to oh, then God, have a, yeah. a long drive afterwards. Or, yeah, I wouldn't be down with that at all. <laughs> So this conversation has really kind of gotten us into the next thing that we really want to talk about today was like, what gave us like that horror bug or like, what was the thing that, why do we keep coming back to this thing? Yeah. That makes us scared. So what was it for you after your uh, harrowing experience with the, uh, the vacuum cleaner salesman? I think, I think the thing the most is that I've used horror movies so much to connect with other people. Like, okay. obviously, like, not even not even this, like, where our interactions together, like, we've been gone, going back and forth for over a, about a year now, just talking about mm. horror films. But it's, my dad loves horror movies, and my fiancé doesn't, so he and I, whenever a new scary movie comes out, I'm like, Dad, you want to go watch that? Mm. So he and I will bond over that experience of watching that movie, to where, like, we'll leave it, and, like, yeah, it's probably a good thing that Mom didn't come with us to watch this. <laughs> um. Or like just like the the memory that I have with m- one of my best friends, Derek, of watching Darkness Falls in his basement. Mm. Um, it's yeah, it's scary, but it's also like something that I can use to connect to other people because regardless of what your like identity is, mm-hmm. like horror means something to somebody, and you're always going to be able to have that conversation with them. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I I think because it's a genre that's built on eliciting very primal emotions um that that is quite a bonding thing you know you're not going to have the same level of conversation about i don't know friends or something like that yeah um it's not to you know denigrate the tv series but yeah it is just evoking a very different emotional state so yeah naturally you're going to have a more powerful reaction there's going to be more to say it's interesting that you touch on like the the kind of communal aspect of the horror genre would you say you're someone that enjoys watching a horror film at the cinema 
oh i love going to the going to the movies and watching them like i love being in a theater watching horror movies in part like it's one of the, my favorite, I guess, like subgenre of horror, though, is like, I guess, like the torture porn, like quote unquote mm. torture porn forms of horror. Um, I love the Saw series. It's my, my it's my absolute favorite horror franchise. Um, but just being in that room with a bunch of people and all of us as like the rack trap is twisting a guy's arm and all of us are just like, oh, Whoa. it's like it's we at that moment. All of us are sharing in this guy's pain. We can feel what that we can feel what that character is feeling. And mm. I don't know how many different film genres there is that give you the ability to connect so easily with a main character or a character on the screen mm. that a horror movie can. Because like we all have memories of being scared. We all have memories of feeling pain. So like seeing somebody who is scared or in pain, like we can be like, I feel that. Mm. See, that's interesting because I'm at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Like, I, most films I quite like going to the cinema to see, um, but horror films, absolutely not, unless it's like a massive thing that I've been waiting years and years for it to come out, like uh, the remake of it being a prime example. Like, I was so desperate to see that. There's no way I was going to wait for a home release. But, yeah, for me, like, it, the experience is completely ruined if someone distracts me. So if someone's talking... If someone's got their phone on, if there's like a light or something like that, or excessive amounts of movement, I know I'm coming across like a sort of angry old man, but <laughs> <laughs> like a classic sort of uh, British cliche. But um, yeah, it just ruins it completely. So for me, a horror film is is something you watch completely alone at night when it's dark with all the lights off, um, just to maximise like the intensity of the experience. So for me. Um, I would say one of the scariest like film watching experiences was probably watching Paranormal Activity alone at about two in the morning in my oh, flat. Yeah. But I can yeah, see that. so yeah, but but I you know like the communal aspect was was never a thing for me. So yeah, it, it's interesting that that that's a big part of the draw for you. Oh. Well, it's I would say that it's so seeing them in the theater is obviously going to be a fully different experience because mm. even leaving like it's I like it basically I like I like it both ways is. I enjoy the communal aspect of it by watching it in a theater, but I also really enjoy being able to watch a horror movie at home with like one or two other people mm-hmm. while we're sitting in a dark room watching this movie. It's one of the funniest memories that I have is watching a horror movie with my um, some of my friends and my sister having her friends all over for a sleepover or watching a horror movie in the middle of winter and my friends and I sneak out the back door write messages in snow on all of the car windows and come back in and while we're <laughs> While we're watching it, the wind does us a real solid and slams open our screen door. So oh. all of us jump and the girls go to the door to see what happened. And they open the thing and they see all of the writing in the cars saying things like, we see you, um, like we, we, like we're in the house, like things like that. And so it's like, I, I guess like the communal aspect is like, they're always there for me because I enjoy, I also enjoy like help, like scaring people in like that fun kind of sense. <laughs> Not like the like being a really scary, <laughs> creepy person, but just like finding those opportunities to like enhance that movie experience for them by bringing it into real life a little bit. No, oh, um, fair play, fair play. But I w- but I would agree is that watching it by yourself or with like one other person in that dark room, like you're gonna get way more paranoid watching that there than you are in a theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, 
I and and it's interesting that that's that's the sort of path or the preference that I went down because for me I I didn't go back to the horror genre for a long time after watching Jason Lives. So assuming that was when I was about seven, um, it probably would have been late teens, early twenties before I went back to the genre. Um, mm. specifically because I hated the thought of being scared or, or like willingly entering into, entering into a situation that was going to be scary. Um, and I had a real aversion, again, interesting that it's, that it's one of the genres or the subgenres you enjoyed, but anything that had a sadistic undertone to it um, really sort of turned me off. And I so I just assumed that that was what the entire horror genre was, like sadistic torture porn that was scary. So I was like, oh, no, thanks, I'll pass on that. Um but for for me, that I think the reason I went back to it was, um, I had another friend who had like way more permissive parents, so he had seen pretty much everything that I'd seen in the video store, um, and you know when you're having conversations when you're like you know pre-teens, like you're never going to get like a particularly detailed description of a film. You'll just get like the core points, like oh yeah, it's a yeah. film about haunted house or whatever. Um, and the one he told me about that stuck with me the most was it, which was basically oh, there's this film where a clown turns into the thing that you're most afraid of. And you're like, oh, man, that's like the ultimate example of something that should be nice and pleasant, having this really evil connotation to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the thing eventually that that drew me back, was just like thinking about that and having it floating around in my my thoughts and my dreams for about a decade or so. Um, it ended up airing on terrestrial TV um, mm-hmm. and I sat down and watched it. And again, I got terrified. Um, but this time I actually got off on on the terror. I think, you know, when you've got a, a couple of years behind you and you realise that actually, no, a lot of this uh, this supernatural stuff isn't real, you can be scared without thinking that actually the clown's going to come out of the closet and uh, and kill you afterwards. Um, and I think that film, I know we'll, we'll come to this, I don't want to talk about it too much um, now, but that film really did a lot to actually allay my fears about the horror genre, which is actually... Mm it doesn't have to be sadistic. It doesn't have to be exploitive. Um, it can still be affecting and, and powerful and evoke these primal feelings as well as having really good concepts. Um, so yeah, that, that for me was the turning point And that's why I started going back afterwards. Yeah. I think it's, it's like, I say like, I like the torture porn movies, but I think it's also because I grew up a lot watching a lot of the different slasher films. Mm. So like I grew up watching Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Halloween, scream like i watch all those like i watch those like those are those are my jam like i can mm. throw on i can throw on mostly any of the nightmare on elm street or friday the 13th movies and enjoy what i'm watching the entire time like, i can turn mm. my brain off and just watch um but it's i think that next step so like when the saw movies started coming out where they're more like torture porn things like i think what drew what's drawn me the most to the saw movies isn't necessarily the kills like it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to see the traps and like how the traps Mm -hmm. work and like how the traps correlate to the person that is in the trap itself Mm -hmm. uh but it's the fact that i think the scariest thing about saw is that jigsaw could be real Mm. is i know that a michael myers isn't going to exist i know Mm. a jason or a freddy krueger like i'm good they're never going to hurt me some guy could decide someday that he wants to try to prove to people or show people mm-hmm. who are bad a different way or that he deems as bad anyway. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. 
I, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that franchise is definitely where the horror genre sort of pivoted more towards human evil as opposed to supernatural stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I think then that that became the kind of logical precursor to, to what you've got with the genre of today, which is this notion that horrors become elevated. And that's the term that gets thrown around quite a lot, particularly in relation to um, some of the Blumhouse films and productions yeah. that are coming out. Um, people talk about elevated horror. Um, I mean, that that was really one of the, the interesting questions for me is, you know, has the horror genre recently become elevated or has there historically always been something in it for the audience to, you know, to take away something that's going on beneath the surface, that, the surface that's, that's relevant and valuable? What would your take on that be? I think horror movies are in, a, in an interesting spot because it feels like there's a lot of overlap of the your classical like horror movies where it's not necessarily about the kills. It's not about Mm. the, it's not about showing all the stuff. It's about getting your audience to really think about what they're seeing Mm. Um, because there's a lot of good examples of movies like that, like get out or basically anything Mm. that Jordan Peele has put out for his three Mm. horror films. All of them are very thought provoking movies using the typical horror tropes that we can kind of recognize that are present in horror films, but using them in a way that helps deliver the message that he wants to get across Mm. versus things like the saw films where yes i could tell you like saw six is a complete commentary about how the health health insurance system is completely screwed up and hurts good people Mm. because it's kind of what it's about because Mm. the people that are put in the games throughout the entire movie are health insurers Mm. to make them kind of see how or try to put them through the pain that they have caused a bunch of other people but that message is coming across because that's what the movie is telling you. Yeah. It's telling you health insurers are bad. We are killing them to try to put them through some of the pain that they've put other people through. It doesn't provide any, any means of how do we fix it Mm. essentially where like get out is giving the audience that ability to, it gives the ability as a white person to put myself in a black man's shoes and see how racism affects his life every day Mm. because that's what the movie's about but it also gives me tools then to one understand how racism is impacting black americans specifically Mm. but then also how how do i navigate those conversations to help reduce or get rid of racism in our country And I think we're at a spot where we have both of those types of movies being present. It's just that when you throw that horror tab, like name on it, you get the idea like, okay, it's going to be like a saw because those are the more prominent movies that we've seen coming out, or it's going to be like a slasher film. So horror as a whole genre has been given this label of slasher, Mm. bunch of people going to die, bunch of blood, guts, and gore when that's not the whole genre no no absolutely and it i think that's the 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 key difference i think a lot of those themes have always been there in the background in in the films but recently since like elevated horror became more of a thing they've become a lot more foregrounded even i mean i alluded to before but the the way that the films are advertised and marketed and the artwork was you know it was a lot more slash oriented back in the day you look at the the covers and the, the key images for stuff like Get Out or The Invisible Man, which is another one I know that we've talked about before. It really does away with all of those trappings completely um, and casts it in a completely different light. Um, 
but it's interesting. I mean, I think as we were talking before we started about um, zombie films and the fact that they've they've always been a a means of exploring different societal issues. But if you take just three or four examples of like classic horror films from back in the day, um, Hellraiser, Candyman, Misery, and The Shining, um, if if you watch them and you look at them, they've all explored very very kind of different things hellraiser particularly looked at ennui and you know getting bored with kind of regular life and the, the desire or the need to sink out um extreme situations to kind of deal with those films Candyman really delved into racism and poverty misery took a good look at celebrity obsession obsession and how that can be taken to an extreme and the shining of course famously at least originally in the book maybe not so much in the kubrick adaptation um, explored alcoholism and the cycle of abuse but I think the difference is people didn't come to the films for those things they came to it for you know here's a dude that's got a hook for a hand and he's killing people and I was in a state or you know yeah. look at the haunted hotel but um but yeah I, I think for me that that's really one of the, the great things about the genre like you come for the hook but you, you there's always been an opportunity to find out about this stuff that actually I don't think many other genres necessarily try and explore yeah or it gives it gives you the ability to use people's understanding of what horror is mm. to give a message that they might not be wanting to hear or be as open to hearing if it was from like a regular action movie. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can see people you can see people complaining all the time about how Marvel isn't in, like including too many women, or that there's like they have their, their complaints about there being too like women focused or too um, like anti-men or like whatever you, whatever mm. argument you want to use. She Hulk, the She Hulk series currently is a great example of how people just are like, it's too like in your face feminist, like blah, blah, blah. Mm. But horror can do that in a way that other genres can't because mm. of the tropes or the understandings that we have of what horror movies are. Mm. So kind of using this then as like that little nice, nice fun segue what is a horror trope or like what are some like just common tropes that if we're like if i were to say like a movie has this this and this in it you're like that's a horror movie mm, mm, mm. i i would say um one of them definitely would be the final girl syndrome oh, yeah. um yeah like everyone's uh everyone's generally been whittled away by the killer until you end up with the final girl who's left and without exception certainly in the 80s it would always be the the quiet bookish wallflower that wasn't having sex. Everyone else, like the cheerleaders, would have been topped off within the first act or two. But yeah, that would oh, definitely yeah. be a trope for me. Oh, the final girl is one of my one of my favorite tropes in like horror movies, specifically because of the messaging that can come from that. Mm. So like I know we were having plan on like doing it like later on. We can just kind of like throw it in back and forth mm. as we're going through the tropes. But the final girl trope to me is a trope that has both positive and negative like yeah. messaging behind it because while yeah Laurie Strode being able to survive multiple movies going <laughs> against Michael Myers like that's a she's a powerful badass woman mm. who was able to survive against this giant powerful man mm. like that's a good message that women are able to be able to survive the like survive this male dominated environment or this man who is working on trying to dominate her specifically. Mm. Like that's a good message, but then you also have the final girl trope saying that 
you can't be a overly attractive or over overly sexual woman like you need to remain pure because if you have sex you're gonna you're end up like that cheerleader in act one who got <laughs> killed um you can't like you can't overly flaunt your looks you have to be like a good like middle ground like if we were to do like the rating scale like you have mm. to be on like a five or a six because if you're overly attractive you're going to get killed because you're going to be having sex and if you're not attractive enough well no one's going to be around to keep you safe when you die <laughs> mm. you're an act one kill yeah yeah so there's a lot of like messaging that can come from that one trope specifically mm. but that one to me is the one that is one of the few tropes that has both positive and negative messaging that comes from it. I would definitely agree with that. Um, and I always wondered as well, what the intent was behind it initially. Cause I mean, you mentioned um, Halloween and I think that was definitely one of the first films, probably not the first film. I think last Christmas is one of the ones um, or black Christmas. I always forget the title um, is one of the ones that's, that's cited as like one of the original slasher films, but I've never been able to figure out whether or not that was, a, a kind of early iteration of incel where you've got someone being like, oh. oh, everyone else is having sex apart from me, so I'm going to write a film and kill them all off. Or whether or not it came from a much nicer place, which was almost a sort of equivalent of, you know, nice guys don't have to finish last. Actually, you know, yeah, you, you might not be the popular person. You might not be the one that everyone wants to date, but actually in a in a harrowing situation, you're the one that's going to have it together a lot more. You're going to come out on top. And whether or not that was... Uh, the intention behind it. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a trope because it's been used so many times in so many different films and franchises. So the the intention is going to differ film to film and series to series. But yeah, I, I do wonder where it originally came from. Well, it's interesting to me too, especially like doing the work that I do specifically around domestic and sexual violence prevention. That films with final girls, typically that final girl is your main character. Mm. Like, Laurie Strode is the main character of Halloween. Like, yeah, you can say it's Michael Myers because he's going around killing a bunch of people and he's in every single one. Mm. But Laurie Strode is his obsession. That's mm. his... She's his driving force. Um, And yeah, maybe it's the driving force to kill her, but <laughs> driving force nonetheless. Mm. Um, But even in the, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, and I, we had talked about this prior to the recording, mm, mm. but the Nightmare on Elm Street, using that final girl trope, all of your main characters throughout it, you have men and women, but the dream sequences that you see throughout the first film are specifically mostly all women. Mm. Whenever you get a guy dream, a guy's dream sequence, it's him falling asleep just before Freddy kills him. Mm. Like, yeah, you don't yeah. see what the psych you don't see the psychological trauma that is being caused by freddy krueger on these men you just see the physical act of them dying mm. but with the female characters throughout the entire thing you see the psychological damage that it's taking on them you mm. see them fighting for the men in their lives to listen to them about their lived mm. experiences and they don't until it's too late mm. like yeah, no. i think the, like, i think in the first one the is it, i want to say it's tina can't remember her name but like her dad doesn't believe her until mm. she sees the until he sees a girl on fire mm. like then he's like okay yeah what you're saying is true like well no shit that's what it's true i've been telling you this the entire hour and a half prior to this point in the movie but now you listen to me because you've seen it too it just it's that correlation to the real life how women like consistently have to fight specifically other men in their in their lives to believe their lived experiences 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 they really took that to the to the extreme in the first film because um, I, I think that was one of Johnny Depp's first film roles. But yeah. there's a whole bit in that where Nancy's trying to persuade him not to fall asleep because he's going to get killed. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, he's dragged down into his bed in this, this shower of blood as she's out. Yeah. But it, it was interesting as well because, I, you know, given the lack of, of strong, positive female role models um, in, you know, films and TV series... I, I do find it interesting that a genre that's been so maligned for so long as being cheap and exploitative in many ways was kind of was waving the flag in that regard, you know, decades ago. I mean, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, of course, then sort of took mm-hmm. that and ran with it even further. Um, you know, whether or not you, you regard that series as sort of true out and out horror, it was very much built around that that final girl concept um, and, and did a lot with that and took that a lot further. You know, issues with Joss Whedon that subsequently came to light, notwithstanding. Yeah, Yeah. but I think it brings up a good point, too, is that, like I said earlier, like we think of horror as being like this slasher centric genre, this like Mm. big body count type of thing. But Supernatural is horror, especially Mm. season one, Mm. because if you have things including vampires, werewolves, things that go bump in the night, Mm -hmm. that's horror. Like Frankenstein's monster, that's a staple horror movie character that people recognize, but mm. not recognizing the messaging coming from Frankenstein's monster of like people view him as a monster, yet that was just who he was. Like he had no mm. say in the matter. Like he didn't want to be this monster. People made him out to be this monster. Mm. They, they really, I don't know if you ever saw um, Kenneth Branagh's. Um take on uh, on Frankenstein I think it was just called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein but that famously had Robert De Niro starring as the monster mm. um but that I would definitely recommend that for anyone who hasn't seen it um because that really plays up that that concept which is another one that we, we touched earlier um the trope of the outsider and fear of the outsider and there's a really harrowing moment in that where he tries to befriend some people after he's he's escaped from the laboratory um, and the most horrific thing in the film is just seeing the sadistic way he's treated by by people just because he, he looks and acts slightly differently, even though there's nothing fundamentally violent or awful about him. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that's popped up in a lot of the films that I've seen. Yeah, I think another trope, too, that's kind of like similar in that sense um, is like, so you mentioned like that fear of the other or that fear of like things that we don't quite know or understand. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, I think we see it a lot then with like, like the ghost movies, like mm. super, like um, not super, paranormal activity, um, yeah. things like that. It's like it's the fear of the unknown. Like we don't know what's going on. We don't know about like this ghost. Like we don't know what's causing it. We don't know. We can, there's no physical form to it. It's just we don't know what it is, and it's scary. Mm. I I think linked to that is is another trope. Um, and again, you alluded to this when you were talking about um, A Nightmare on Elm Street, but I think definitely there's this concept of they're not going to believe you. Like, oh, yeah. this, this stuff never believe the main character. Yeah, but like, no, no one's going to accept this. You're going to be laughed off. It's going to be dismissed. You haven't got any evidence. Um, I, it, it Exclusively, I would say, is is always the defining part of Act 2 of a horror story. It's, you mm-hmm. know, the, the horrific stuff started. 
you, you've kind of had some stuff happen, but you haven't got that tangible proof. You start running around telling people, you go to the police, you go to your parents, you go to your boyfriend, you go to your girlfriend, whoever, all the people that you would go to for help and support and warmth, the walls come up and it's like, bollocks, of course that's not happening. And I particularly, I would say for me, like that's that's one of the best things about the horror genre and one of the best tropes because it is that concept of, actually, if you want people to believe you, like they're probably not going to. So you really need to be thinking about having some proof, which obviously I, I've worked in, um, I've worked with the concept of domestic abuse in the media I've put out. Um, and that's definitely a major thing within that is, you know, actually getting people to believe you when you tell your story is, uh, is not as clear cut as you might expect it to be. Um, and yeah, you might struggle to, to find that acceptance. So yeah, I, I think it's good that the horror genre, perhaps inadvertently, but certainly explores similar territory. Oh yeah. Well, it's like even thinking about working like in domestic and sexual violence prevention, like I'm trying to get people to, when a victim shares their story with them, believe them. Because the most important thing you can do for them is believe them because it gets them the resources and help they need and it doesn't shut them down. Mm. If if anybody listened to Laurie Strode mm. at any point, I'm sure Michael Myers would not have been able to continue to do what he did for so long. No, if, no. If, and granted, this – and it's a good – it's an interesting um, compare, like con- contrast. Because even if people believed Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street, mm. like what's that going to do? Mm. Like, is it going to get people to not think about Michael uh, or Freddy Krueger? Is it not going to make people fall asleep? Mm. But I think it would have allowed for them to be able to have conversations about what it was and figuring out mm. ways to stop him sooner. Mm. Like no, she had to true. figure out on her own. Yeah, this was a dream and she has control of the dream realm when it's in her dream. But if other people listen, they may have came to that conclusion about 45, 50 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And, and, you know, if if we're exploring parallels to domestic violence, like she may not have been able to easily extricate herself from that situation. But like it wouldn't have been as desperate and lonely and, and isolated because she wouldn't have had that that battle to to find other people that were having similar experiences, she wouldn't have been dealing with it in isolation. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, yeah, for me, that's, um, that's one of the great things about the genre. And I think just cutting back to what you were saying earlier about get out. One of the things that the genre is really great at doing is making you connect with the central character and then enabling mm-hmm. you to, or, you know, obviously a kind of third hand remove, but to have a, a very similar reaction to the situations that they're in and I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all for people to indirectly experience that horrific situation of something's happened and you know I've gone to the people that should be helping me and actually that's just not happening at all because like you say it can uh, can help to foster empathy for for real life afterwards oh yeah just like even looking at get out too I enjoy so much that it is a the primary character of the film is a black character just based on how minority populations have typically been utilized in horror films. Mm. It, so like I said, Get Out uses a bunch of different horror movie tropes that we can recognize. Well, we recognize if I'm watching a horror movie where it's a white girl and a black guy as my two main characters, and they show up in a place where there's a bunch of white people and some black people, I'm like, oh, this dude's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Because horror movies consistently kill off their minority characters or the characters that are not straight almost yeah. immediately 
Like they're always the first ones to get killed or the second ones to get killed. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think um, or if you've got any kind of disability as well, that that's going to mark mm. you for death pretty quickly. Like I think it was a nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, I want to say seven, but I could be wrong. Um, but I know in that they actually made a kill out of the fact that a guy's got a hearing aid. Um, and I think the hearing aid comes to life and, and blows his eardrums up or something along those lines. And you're like, hey, well, maybe a little bit too far there. But yeah, it's in like we like we've talked about like the messaging that's then coming from those tropes. Like if you're going to see a movie where consistently those minority characters are being killed off immediately, what message is that sending about how mm. that world specifically is viewing their minority characters, but then also what message is that sending about how we're viewing the world around us? Mm. If I consistently see minority characters being placed in positions where they're being killed almost first, their lives don't mean as much then to me as mm. the white characters that I'm following behind because the white character is the one that survives. Yeah, and I think that's the other aspect just in terms of the way that the, the films are structured. The, the people that get offed first are the ones that you haven't had time to build up an emotional connection with. So actually what happens to them doesn't really have that much meaning or emotional impact in the context of the film. So yeah, goes hand in hand with the messaging then because you're not being encouraged or fostered or engineered to have a reaction to that. Yeah, it's, it's the thing I love the most about horror movies is it gives you the opportunity to have those conversations around different social things that are a little bit mm. more touchy or hard to talk about mm. which is why it's, this is such a good topic to have on touchy subjects yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, it's interesting because i think alongside that one of the other things the genre has been good at is this other trope that's just kind of linked to the final girl of the underdog coming out on top um mm -hmm. and actually if you, if you go back to you know the, the 70s when the slasher genre started to take off and then sort of seeing into the 80s um obviously women's rights weren't where they are today which isn't to say that they're they're in a fantastic space today either um so the fact that you had a genre then actually looking at someone who in in the society of the time was the underdog um and showing that they could come out on top i think was a valuable message but they very similar thing with um stephen king's it obviously with the book when that came out and then with the, the original miniseries when that came out in um i think it was 1990 or thereabouts but the concept that you know the losers represented everyone that was that was on the the periphery of society um and and that actually their their ability and their strength came from those misfortunes you know you had the the kid that was struggling with his weight the kid that had a incredibly overbearing parent or mother i think it was Eddie Kasprak's mother i think that had uh, encouraged him to believe he had all these illnesses so it kind of delved into yeah. munchausen's by proxy you had the kid that had the emotionally distant parents the kid that had the you know the sexually abusive dad um and i thought and they built on this much more in the remakes of the films i thought was the fact that you could have this supernatural entity who thrived on eliciting a fearful reaction from people being completely unable to touch these kids because actually these real life issues they were dealing with were so much more horrific that they were like, mm -hmm. you know, kill a clown, eh, you know, <laughs> you want to come home with me, mate, sometime, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was a really good thing to do. And again, something that you don't really see too much of in other genres is the fact that, yeah, it, it is celebrating someone being different to the norm 
someone having all of these challenges and actually showing that you know you can come out on top in spite of those things yeah i think a good example of that is um the invisible man so mm. we've you and i've talked going back and forth about it um so the new version of the invisible man i'm not talking about the guy who did an experiment and made himself invisible so he wore a bunch of bandages oh, kevin um, bacon one yeah <laughs> so they took that premise of what the old invisible man is because invisible man is one of those like classic monsters mm. um, but they made it into a modern movie that actively discusses domestic violence the entire time mm. where your main character is experiencing domestic violence we clearly see that in the first sequence of the film where she's setting up to try to escape from this house late at night so he doesn't know you see him punch through the window as he's trying as she's trying to leave and then you see the impacts of the trauma of experiencing domestic violence mm. in this woman. You see her constantly being worried about things that are happening. She's afraid to go outside because she doesn't know where he could be at mm. because of the trauma that he put her through. Um, and then when he starts tormenting her, he torments her with things that victims often experience. Mm. Where she's like, I found this pill bottle that I know I left behind. And a bunch of people are like, well, are you sure you left it behind? Mm. So just aiding then in the disbelief that of what's happening to her so going back to the trope of nobody believing this person but she ends up on top she ends up being able to overcome the trauma that he has put her through he's she's able to overcome the harm and all this other stuff and while yes it's a two almost two hour film so you can't do like everything and show mm -hmm. the full healing process of somebody who experiences domestic violence but it does a phenomenal job of showing all those barriers that are put in place for victims mm. doing so in a way that uses the horror movie tropes. So we can recognize this is a horror movie, but here is the messaging coming from that. Mm. Yeah, that that's an absolutely fantastic example. I think of, of really, really good horror and it, and it's not something that, you know, you have to go to and watch because you want to find out about domestic violence. You know, the draw of it is dudes invisible. What happens? Um, yeah. but yeah, they, they really do a fantastic job of, of just making you understand her experience and what it feels like. And yeah, just all the moments where people should have taken her seriously and they're just like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the, her friend that she's living with him saying that she thinks she's, she's got other things going on when he, the, the, I guess the abusive partner is doing a bunch of things to cause her to look like the crazy person, mm. which is again, what they do. Mm. And it's isolated. It isolates her then from the people who care about her. And then when she finally finds somebody, he just gets rid of her. Yeah. He's like, Oh, so you can still rely on this girl. Let me just take her off the table for you. So mm. now you look even more crazy. I did a fantastic job in that film as well as of, of showing just how easily, um, the partners can appear to be normal and without sort of getting too much into spoiler territory when you do see the guy um and you do see him talking and speaking and interacting with other people you know he's, he's the classic sort of charming guy um yeah and again i, I thought that was a really nice thing to bring into what's essentially a, a mainstream drama in some ways is is that they didn't just go for you know the, the monstrous angry shouting guy and as being the face of domestic abuse like they actually showed the disguise that that he can hide behind quite convincingly yeah it wasn't the 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 his mask wasn't that he was invisible mm. because of the suit that he created 
he was the invisible person that was ever present in her life even after the relationship ended mm. so I, I just also just that's why i love the use of the title the invisible man because it's also not like yes he's an invisible man very mm. literally he is invisible mm. <laughs> but also it's that idea that those who experience domestic violence or those who have experienced any form of real trauma that trauma is still present almost as an invisible being with mm. them I mean, there's there's a particular scene in in the film that um, if I just said restaurant scene, I think your mind would instantly yeah. uh, go to the same place. I know so exactly. Again, I got, yeah, <laughs> I I won't spoil it for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it. But um, but that there, there are moments of memorable violence, let's say, in the film, and I guess this uh, this is another trope and probably the one of the main areas where the genre as a whole has been so problematic is glamorization of violence or excessive violence um so there's one horror website that i go to quite frequently that reviews films um and they'll review it based on two metrics one of which is the level of nudity in the film and the other of which is the level of violence in the film um and don't get me wrong like there, there's some good stuff on the website in terms of like critically how they talk about the films but like you can totally see how someone can look at that and be like yeah that's an exploitative genre um, but the violence aspect obviously is one that's that's come up a lot in the past. So, you know, whenever there's any kind of wide scale violence, one of the things that often gets looked at is, you know, what were the cultural things that the people that committed this into? And, you know, it's been rock music a lot of times in the past. It's been video games, Doom, first person shooters. But the horror genre is another one that, that comes up. So I mean, what's your take on on that do you think it does glamorize violence do you think it, it's kind of built its reputation on gore yeah so it's i think my take is a is a slightly more nuanced take in part based on the work that i do is like i know that exposure to violent media isn't going to cause someone to be violent mm. obviously if it did i would be a very violent person i listen to <laughs> eminem talking about murdering his wife I watch a bunch of horror movies. I'm wearing a Camp Crystal Lake shirt right now. <laughs> I've played first-person shooters my whole life. Mm. I've played GTA. If anyone's set up to be a very violent, harmful person, it's me. You've got a basement as well. Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've got a basement where I could have easily, you know, hid bodies if I needed to. <laughs> but it's... The exposure to violent media does help normalize violence mm -hmm. or having it be ever present, but it's if you are able to understand what you are watching is non-acceptable behavior, mm -hmm. that is not going to cause it's not going to cause you to be violent. Me spending mm -hmm. my day watching all nine Saw movies isn't going to cause me to go out and to try to be like Jigsaw. No, I I, I would absolutely agree. I I I I. I've never really bought into the idea that exposure to, you know, a, a media portrayal of violence encourages violence in the person that's watching it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've seen arguments or I've heard arguments that actually argue the contrary, which is in some ways it can be quite a cathartic experience. And that's actually arguably a lot better because it provides a, a nice, safe means to, you know, to vent frustrations or to relieve stress and to relieve tension. Um mm -hmm. And I would say as well, like it, a large part of it depends on the way that it's it's portrayed and whether or not the film's almost encouraging you to take pleasure in in the suffering of the people on the screen. But actually, in the same way, I think it, it's it's good for people to be scared at a young age. Um, I, I think that actually exposure to violence on screen 
an, an exposure to the effects of that. So, you know, particularly in films that, like you were saying with um, Nightmare on Elm Street, kind of explore the traumatic implications of experiencing this, the characters experiencing this stuff. I think that's really good. Um, you know, if anything, that that's a good deterrent in the same way that, you know, if you watched a, a health and safety warning about a kid poking a pin into an electrical socket and you saw what happened to him, like you're not going to be coming away from that being like, dude, that was cool. Like the guy got fried. You're going to be like, the last thing I'm going to do now is, is pop a pin in an electrical socket. Yeah. Well, it's also that ends up that, that example specifically is one of the, the fears that I often have doing some presentations because if a kid has never thought of putting a pin in an electrical socket if they see this now like is there a chance that they're like i want to know what that actually is true yeah. if that actually happens i think the thing that i enjoy about horror films is typically the way that they're experiencing it is not something that i could watch and be like you know i wonder if that actually is true like mm. i understand that if a machete is coming at somebody who was super strong and mm. hits them in the neck, there's a good chance it's going to decapitate somebody. <laughs> I understand that that's going to happen. <laughs> like, it's... The violence that you'll see in horror films is either going to be violence that you yourself probably aren't going to be able to do. Mm. Like, I'm never going to be able to break into somebody's dream and then pin them up to the ceiling and <laughs> continually slash them and have their corpse fall to the bed in front of their boyfriend. Like I no, can't do that. No, no one's got that upper body strength. I can't morph my body in a way that's going to be going to resemble somebody's biggest fear, but I could place myself in a position where I, I could be abusive to my partner physically or emotionally. Mm. But if I'm seeing the, if I'm seeing how that plays out in a film like The Invisible Man, I gain an understanding that, oh, some of those behaviors aren't okay or good because mm. at, no, at no point is it portrayed that doing those bad things is a good thing. Mm, definitely. I think um, you were talking before about um, the genre sort of morphing away from supernatural concerns towards like human evil. I think a really great example of that at the moment is the Dharma miniseries that they've released on um, yeah. Netflix with Evan Peters in the title role, um, which obviously is a true crime thing. But actually, if you looked at the the trappings of it and the tropes of it, I mean, it it's it's horror, and it and it was horror in real life. Um, but yeah, there, there's some pretty horrific physical violence in there. But I think it it's really good for people to see that because it hammers home the danger of you know, just hooking up with a stranger and going off somewhere and your friend's not knowing where you are, who you've gone off with, what the address is. Um, yeah, I, definitely one I would I recommend to, to people too. Yeah, I will say though, this is also ends up being one of the things that I have a little bit of an issue with, typically in horror specifically, is that it's always a stranger doing harm to someone. Mm. Like, the... so. I think that's one of the reasons I do also, I, I just really enjoy Get Out and The Invisible the Invisible Man mm. because both of those things show how violence is actually going to take place. It's going to be from the people that know you the best. Mm. In Get Out, he is placed in that situation specifically because his girlfriend puts him there. Mm. The Invisible Man is about her ex-partner who was abusive trying to maintain control over her. Mm. That is how typically violence is going to play out. Yes, stranger violence happens regularly but you're most likely to be harmed by the people who are closest to you. 
Mm. And that doesn't come off very often in horror films. No, no, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I think with the with the exception of um, The Shining, um, which again yeah. I think was um, w- was one of the sort of early ones that bucked the trend with that. Um, but I'll hold off on talking about that because that's uh, that's one of my recommendations for later on. <laughs> So one of the things that I do also want to hit on in here, because we've talked about how like this, like the social commentary and everything is mm. because I love zombie movies so much <laughs> that zombie movies, I think, give a really good idea, a good picture of how you can use horror to create social commentary mm. without having that message be like directly in your face. Mm-hmm. It's like looking at George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. So like the first, like one of the main zombie movies that kind of really ushered in zombies being a typical reoccurring monster in horror mm. is that's a conversation about racism mm. like one of your main characters is a black dude who survives and is then killed by police mm. and this film came out just months after the assassination of martin luther king jr mm. like he there's like you could not have like it to ignore that that is the message that that movie is getting across is to have not actually watched that movie mm. yeah you can't see that and not hit that at all it was interesting actually when they remade that in again i think it was probably the early 90s um it was the, the guy that i think did the special effects on dawn of the dead ended up helming the um, the directorial duties on the remake but they, they, there are moments in that where the characters explicitly say, perhaps a little bit too on the nose, oh my God, we're the actual monsters here. But yeah, that's absolutely the, the theme of them, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting that that's the thing, that's the message that they're getting across from a remake of that movie in the 90s. Mm. Because like you can see like how the, horror, the, um, the zombie subgenre specifically changes based on the time that it's in. It's like you have the zombie genre being reminiscent of. So after you have like the George Romero one, like the next thing is like this is the in I think it was like the, I want to say like the seventies mm-hmm. era, like when the AIDS epidemic was like at its peak sphere. Is that's the first time you see zombies coming from an illness. Mm-hmm. So it's using the comment using zombies as that commentary then on people's fear of disease. Or then going from that to like a fear of natural disasters to where like the zombie apocalypse just kind of happens. Mm. And now like how do we function where after a natural disaster has occurred? Um, or like now, especially like with The Walking Dead or like with that, um, the remake in the 90s, mm. a fear of people. Or how are people going to respond in these moments? Or how people themselves are the biggest threat and fear to other people? Mm. That's I I think that that's been mirrored in the genre as a whole. There's a fantastic book that I would recommend to anyone who's who's got a passing interest in the genre called Paperbacks from Hell, um, which was done by one of the kind of new wave horror writers called Grady Hendrix, um, and he focuses on a particular genre of horror in like you know paperback book form for each chapter. Um, but it's interesting to see the parallels between these things like taking off in the marketplace and then what was happening in the real world at the time. Um, so one particular area 
it was like the haunted house area um which obviously I, the Amityville horror was one of the first sort of like iterations of that but that was happening at the same time that you had this so-called white flight happening which is when people were moving away from city centers towards the suburbs um and you suddenly have this this sort of twin genre of you know things being awful and there being some form of societal breakdown in cities and then, you know, what happens when you go out to the suburbs? Are they really filled with, you know, these backwater hicks that are going to cannibalise us? Um, so, yeah, it, it's always interesting to see how what's prevalent in the genre at a particular point in time correlates with with what's actually going on. Um, likewise, there was this whole, I mean, it seems completely ridiculous now, but there was a whole point in the 80s where there was like a run of stuff that dealt with possessed computers or possessed telephones or possess fax machines and you know as soon as you've got like Shut technology up. yeah <laughs> you've got technology taking off and you know people's fears about them um their jobs being at risk because they're going to become automated and yeah that manifests itself as you know thing uh yeah films and, and books about possessed computers i think there was also a, a particular point in time when dungeons and dragons was viewed as having satanic yeah. undertones and yeah there were a couple of books that were that were put out along those lines, which again, absolutely ridiculous now in retrospect. Oh, but it's it's one of the things I do love so much though about the most recent season specifically of Stranger Things. Like it's been a reoccurring a kind of reoccurring theme throughout most of the series about the the D and D like demonic mm. aspect to it. But this season specifically really hit on it. Mm. And I love that for the show because it fits so squarely into the time period that they're trying to make stranger things be from so like, mm. if you're thinking like an 80s horror movie like that fits mm. and it's the whole thing of like he's like the the deaths that you're seeing happen are appear would appear to be demonic in mm. a sense and the person that they think is doing the killings is mm. a guy who plays D D. Mm. Uh, yeah one of the, the the things that um that started to get a bit more attention in the genre now whether it's a kind of like retro nostalgia thing or whether or not people are kind of waking up to the ridiculousness of it is the satanic panic of um the late 80s and the early 90s yeah. um which again yeah very, very sort of similar concept you know um something happens or something's alleged to have happened and then that's linked to satanism and the idea that there's this massive conspiracy there are people in places of power that are running you know these corrupt networks of you know child abuse and black magic and everything um but again kind of seeing where the allegations fell and what they were linked to um was interesting because yeah often linked to dungeons and dragons for some obscure reason i i still don't get it. it's kind of like the idea that um yeah harry potter um yeah promotes uh witchcraft and bits and pieces like that and you're like eh, i'm pretty sure it doesn't but but um, I did think of something too is that uh, it's really interesting thinking in terms of like that cultural aspect how some horror movies or specifically some types of horror movies do transcend transcend different cultures mm. so if we're looking at I think it just this is also ends up being a, just a film in general kind of thing not just horror mm. but if we're looking at looking look if we're looking for ways to be able to connect to other people film do a great way film can be a great way to do that because once we place ourselves in that character's shoes mm. 
we are no longer ourselves. We are that person. Mm. Watching Get Out, I am no longer myself. I'm placing my sho- myself in the shoes of our main character. And while, yes, I myself will never experience what's this- I will never experience racism in the society that I live in. It gave it's giving me that opportunity to at least begin to understand how that can take place and how what and the harms that come from it if I've never experienced that. Oh, definitely. I there's a really good example of that on Netflix at the moment. It's a film called His House, um, which is about two people who've um um had to flee to England, um, due to a lot of issues in um in their native country. Um but like in doing so, they've had to make some sacrifices, which I won't again talk about for for the sake of spoilers. And the horrific elements of the film are linked to those sacrifices. Um, but again, you know, you're not coming to the film because you want to watch a film about immigration. You're coming to the film because you know it's like a it's a supernatural haunted film. Um, but yeah, massive eye opener for me because that's that's not a subject I would necessarily go out of my way to look into. And yet, you know, the hook pulled me in and. All of a sudden, you have a, a lot more empathy and understanding for for people that are in that horrific situation. And again, like some of the most horrific parts of that film are just seeing the living conditions that they're forced to to endure because that's the reality of it. And it's you know the kind of truth behind the the newspaper headlines that you see over here about you know oh immigrants come over and they get the best housing and they get all this free money and everything. And you're like, oh no, that's definitely not the case at all. Yeah. So. I have very much enjoyed this conversation. And obviously, as those listening can tell, Michael and I could probably talk about this for another hour and a half if we wanted to. Um, but you've heard us mention a bunch of different horror films, series, books throughout the entire thing. So to kind of wrap this up, we wanted to make sure that we gave our audience some recommendations mm. that if horror films and horror things in general aren't necessarily your cup of tea, what could be things that you could watch or read that would allow you to still experience horror, but mm-hmm. maybe not in the way that you're going to be super, super scared after yeah. watching it. If you're like my fiance who absolutely hates horror movies and is, just doesn't want to do that because what she experiences on a day-to-day basis in her job is scary enough. Mm. Here are some recommendations for you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I've definitely tried to keep that in mind when uh, when I came up with mine. This is definitely for the people who have been like, you know, do you know what? I don't get off on excessive violence. I'm not really someone who's a massive fan of being like super scared. And, you know, if it's supernatural, if it's about ghosts or poltergeist or anything like that. Yeah, maybe not so much my cup of tea. Yeah. So if you were looking at giving a recommendation, because I think our list had like what a recommendation for like a book, a mm. series, a movie. Um, we'll start with, let's start with books. Mm. I know, I think, I think novels was the last one on the list, but I'm not going to have a whole lot of recommendations here because I don't do as much reading as I probably should. Oh man, you're missing out. So I, I would absolutely say the horror genre, um, in fiction has absolutely exploded, um, over the last 10 years. I remember about a decade ago going into the horror section in Waterstones in the UK and you didn't have a lot of choice. It was Dean Koontz, Stephen King maybe a few old copies of uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, but now it's just absolutely exploded and there's so many good authors out there. Um, but the horror novel I would recommend is a book called A Head Full of Ghosts by an author called Paul Tremblay. 
Um, and the basic question behind the book is what would happen if the exorcist occurred in real life? And the answer is the girl's family would turn it into a reality TV show, even though it's far more likely that the kids got some kind of troubles going on. And, you know, it's highly unlikely that they're, they're suffering from demonic possession. Um, so it really delves into the possession subgenre, which isn't one that we've talked a lot about. Um, and it isn't a particularly outlandish genre to explore. There's a lot of people it transpires when I did a bit of reading into this afterwards who still believe in possession. And there are still a lot of people that actively seek out and get exorcisms. That is still something that you can that you can that you can order, as it were. Um, and one of the great things about the book and one of the, the things that Paul Tremblay as an author is famous for is maintaining a degree of ambiguity. So you, he never really definitively answers the question as to what's going on. Um, and there's plenty of evidence for you to to land on on either side of the fence. You know, it could be genuine possession. Maybe she's putting it on for the attention. Maybe she's she's got some real issues going on, and she's you know been terribly misunderstood by the family. Um, so that for me is is a really good thing. I I generally tend to like um, fiction and drama that that gives you that leeway to kind of make your own mind up or to put your own spin on things. Um, one of the other things I think it's really good at is exploring the reality behind reality TV and the impact that reality TV can have on the people that are involved in it, which, again, this isn't something I think has been massively explored at all, um, but particularly in the horror genre. Um, but, you know, what are the motivations behind the people that go down that route? Um, you know, what's the impact of having your life splashed up on screen? How do your friends and your family react to that? Um, and, again, I won't say too much because I don't want to spoil the the book um but yeah it's fantastic and as i say it's not something that is going to give you a massively sleepless night if you're not too keen on being scared but it's got a brilliant concept he's a really really compelling author so you know that classic thing of you know it gets to 10 o'clock you should probably put the lights out but you need to read one more chapter um so yeah i that would be my uh my definitive recommendation for books i say if i had to give one it would probably be a recommendation that you had given me um it's the black phone stories. So like um, that short, the book of short stories by Joe Hill. Mm, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I had read this on a plane going on to one of our vacations. Um, and specifically the very first short story in that book is one that I think is good at exemplifying how you can use elements of horror, but it doesn't have to be scary. Mm. Because that very first one is about a guy who owns a movie theater who is haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives that, like, okay, so obviously elements of horror, haunted movie theater. Mm. There's your ha- there's your element of horror, but the reason for the haunting, why that ghost is lingering, is kind of a very, it's a very real, like, thing that you can connect to as a reader, and it's not scary. Mm-hmm yeah joe hill's absolutely phenomenal um and i think he's one of the few horror writers that i found who is absolutely about the heart rather than the scares like you you come for the scares but like his stuff's so affecting there's so much emotion running through it um even when he's turned to stuff that isn't sort of pure horror and he's sort of delved more into um, science fiction um yeah he always kind of grabs you by the heart rather than the throat and just as a shout out to him as well, like the guy Stephen King's son, and he made a decision early on in his career not to go down the 
pay on Stephen King's son route when it came to advertising and marketing his books because he wanted to find out whether or not he could make it purely on the strengths of his writing. Um, and like props to the guy because yeah, he's built a career and um, yeah, absolutely a recommendation I would say. Yeah, after seeing after seeing the Black Phone, like the movie itself, I'm hoping mm. that a lot of other his other short stories are able to be developed into films. Mm. Um, just because I think it'd be interesting to see how they portrayed, especially a short film or a short story is a lot more difficult to create a full length film on. Whereas mm. like if you're using some of Stephen King's old stuff, like you've got thousands of pages of information that you can use. Oh, yeah. But for short stories, I think it, it requires you to do a bit more work. Mm. And I think the black phone did a good job. Mm. Yeah. He's always got enough stuff going on in his stories that there's, there's things that you could, uh, that could use as a sort of launching off pad for, you know, your imagination. How did this person come to be here? What was going on with their lives beforehand? So he's very good at bringing that that depth and just that sense of history and complexity to the characters. So, yeah, I, I think there's enough stuff in his stories for them to be able to be spun out into to films pretty well. So using that as an f- awesome transition, because I'm super good at my job of hosting a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> what would be some movie recommendations then? For mm. those looking at horror so um the one i would give which is perhaps paradoxically the the only film that has actually made me cry and kept me up at night purely out of the fear is the one that absolutely has no um supernatural horror elements to it whatsoever and it's a film called threads which is a film that came out in it was either late 70s or the very early 80s in the uk um that bills itself as being a, a factual, almost documentary style depiction of what would happen if a nuclear bomb went off. Um, and they based it in Sheffield, which is, uh, 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 or certainly was an industrial town in England, in the north of England. Um, and they made initially um, a decision to film it using the cast of a popular TV show, um, which probably, be, which is Coronation Street, the equivalent, I guess, would probably be doing the, the same thing in America and filming it with the cast of like Dallas, because they really wanted to bring home to the audience, you know, th- this is how people that you know and love would would react to quite an extreme situation. Um, they didn't end up going down that route in the end, and I think they went with a cast of people who were unknowns as actors. Um, but basically, the the guys behind the script went to a lot of effort to find out specifically what would happen. You know, what would the government's response be? What would the guidance be that's issued to the public? How well would people be able to respond to it? You know, they might be advised to do X, Y, Z, but actually is it possible to do X, Y, Z? What would happen thereafter? What would the response look like? Who would live? Who would die? Who would be taken care of? Um, And it is absolutely terrifying, I would say. Fundamentally, the most terrifying thing about Threads is it's structured in such a way that whenever something bad happens, you then see how people are planning to react to it. And without exception, whatever they do goes wrong and makes the situation worse. Um, And that's like, that's affecting enough as a structural device. But actually when you realize that the stuff they're doing is exactly what the government response to a nuclear bomb is, and you see how badly that would actually work in practice, and you realize, you know, this is exactly what you would experience if this thing happens. Um, yeah, that just brings home the the full reality of the situation um, and covers a trope that we didn't touch on earlier, which is, to quote the stand, the centre does not hold and things fall apart. The people that are in charge actually aren't able to keep things together as successfully as you might think that they would be able to. 
um yeah so yeah i i would absolutely recommend that um just bear in mind that you're probably not going to sleep too well afterwards if you watch it <laughs> how about you um it's going to be dumb because we've mentioned the movies a couple times already but i really think that get out and the invisible man mm-hmm. are two of my like big recommendations usually when it comes to horror stuff that is outside of like the slasher realm mm-hmm. because i'm obviously i always always want to recommend wa- at least watching or trying to watch some of the like classic slasher films because they're so just like i feel like culturally iconic mm. um but both of those films i would also throw in there um one of jordan peele's other films nope uh, not nope i haven't seen i haven't seen nope yet and i would need to watch nope because i know it's oh, gonna be good it's us isn't it um, yeah us yeah um, so I would recommend Us thrown in there as well because Us, The Invisible Man, and Get Out are very much ingrained in horror tropes and using mm-hmm. them effectively to show the sense of fear that is present in the characters mm-hmm. but not necessarily making somebody leave that film and be paranoid about what might happen to them. Like, I can go. I'll go. I can. I can watch Friday the Thirteenth and be afraid that okay, maybe Jason's gonna come around a corner and slash, like, hit me with his machete and kill me. Mm. But I'm not afraid of the Invisible Man getting me because the Invisible Man itself is very much ingrained in that character's story. Yeah, these are personal experiences that are happening to them. I now have an understanding of those personal experiences, but those are not the experiences themselves are not going to be the boogeyman behind the shower curtain for me. No, no, no. That's the thing. You're not going to leave scared for yourself, but you might end up leaving scared for someone else and thinking, you know what, actually, yeah. So some of those things hit home because I recognize those in the behavior of people I've met or people that I know. Yeah, it also helps that I love using media as an education tool, and mm. those are those are few movies that I could that I can easily see myself being able to use, and I have used the Invisible Man um, mm. in some presentations and stuff too. So, no, exactly. I uh, my my recommendation for a horror series actually uh, follows a similar theme. Um, so I was going to recommend the mini series of The Shining, which is different to the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of The Shining um, up on the silver screen that starred um, Jack Nicholson. So uh, some people know this as it's become like more well known as time's gone by. But famously, Stephen King hated Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining because whilst visually it was very effective and it was very or it's certainly become very iconic it's absolutely nothing like the book I mean, the core concept is the same you know, this guy that's down on his luck takes a job as an out-of-season caretaker in this remote hotel um but the film completely obliterated a lot of the themes of the book which was a very deep um exploration of addiction um so jack torrance the, the main character in it is an alcoholic and a big part of his battle in the book is dealing with the fact that he's in this remote location with no access to alcohol. Um, but the book also dealt a lot with familial violence and generational abuse and how those manifest themselves in later life and have the potential to, to negatively impact the relationships that you find yourself in. Um, so the book really goes into a lot of detail with that, but it makes for quite grim reading, or as I would say, the television series that they did 
um, delves into it in such a way that it in, enhances and adds a lot of nuance to the core story without being something that's, you know, being kind of going to bum you out too much. Um, I would also say as well that the acting's far better across the board um, than the Kubrick film, which for all its visual iconography, I have to say, isn't possibly the, the best acted thing I've ever seen. Um, and it's also yeah. filmed in the hotel that inspired King to write the book in the first place, which the Kubrick film isn't. Um, and finally, it bridges the gap really well between Kubrick's film and the recent film they did with Ewan McGregor called Doctor Sleep, which was a sequel to both the book and the film, because there are significant differences in how they both end. Um, so this is a really good bridging point if you're interested in diving into Doctor Sleep. So yeah, I would absolutely recommend that. You can pick that up on DVD for about nine quid, I think, at the moment, or nine dollars, I would say. I will actually have to watch that because I, it was, I'm always afraid to watch a series based on a movie that I've already seen because I'm like, well, what are they going to do to the series itself? That's going to make it so much different than the movie that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that it's more similar to the original book is definitely a selling point to watching that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because one of my recommend, I have a it's hard to think of like one solid like horror series that I would recommend mm. to watch. But one of the ones that I did want to recommend is the scream series. Okay. Because the scream series to me is always scream. The movie scream have always felt to me as a slight, like comedic horror. Mm-hmm. Um, Just the way that the way that, the way that they're made, it just feels like slightly comedic to me. Mm-hmm. And the series, I feel like it lean they lean into that a little well. Like the campiness of an mm. 80s slasher, like it's there. Um, so if you're interested in slasher stuff, the Scream series is a good way to do it. Because it also feels like the Scream series, Scream itself benefits more, I think, from being episodic versus mm-hmm. a standalone two-hour film. Mm. Yeah. Just- by nature of who scream is like well who's behind the mask like a who like a classic whodunit like they're always better in episode form than a movie form it feels like to me mm. they i i think that's one of the few series i've watched that actually justifies sequels because each film yeah. feels like a natural response to the film that came before it um oh, yeah. and, and and again it's one of the few film series that where it makes sense to have a recurring character so you know in Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, there's a supernatural element that brings the the slasher monster back. Actually, in this, it's, you know, someone saw someone else get their 15 minutes of fame by popping on a mask and, you know, offing a few oh, people. Yeah. So in the next film, you know, oh, maybe I should do the same thing. Um, yeah. And in some ways, I think I, I found that that made it a lot scarier than the supernatural stuff because, again, it brings that added level of believability to it. Yeah. Well, it's also like, and this is now a bit more of a tangent about talking about the, about the movie specifically. Mm. Um, the Scream movies themselves also feel a bit like the Saw movies to me, where mm. it's not only like it's a real life thing that could happen because it's not like a supernatural element behind it, but just like in Scream, where you have logical sequels that make sense because it's somebody who's like, I can copycat that, I can mm. do that. So that's what happens. Or even like, even in the Scream series themselves, they have like a movie about the killing that happened mm. and now people are copying the movie um so it's very it's a very meta kind of situation mm. but even in saw you have like that natural progression of this is now some like the newer one where it's this is now somebody who is copycatting jigsaw mm. 
like yeah that would make sense i can see that happening um but for other series recommendations i would recommend um stranger things because it does run with elements of horror in it i would recommend the walking dead absolutely especially up to season eight or nine okay (laughs) um then it starts going off the rails a little bit for me but i love most of the characters in it negan's my favorite character which is going to be rude to a lot of people who have favorite characters who Negan kind of um, took care of at some point, but <laughs> sorry for your luck. And then the other one that I would really recommend is American Horror Story. Mm, yeah, I'd second that. Um, so especially the, so based on what your interest in horror is, each season is different and each season explores different elements of horror. So the first three are the really kind of like scarier ones in terms of like where they're trying to make the audience scared, but then it starts using elements. Um, I guess Coven kind of is where that really derails in season three, where it's more like witchcraft elements. Um, hotel is like a haunted hotel thing. So like you have those elements there, but especially after season two, it stops becoming like boo scary mm. and more like horror elements for entertainment and then there's some ep- some series and some seasons in there where it's like real life scary things yeah cult's really a really good example yeah. of that yeah mm. um so then looking at recommendations for what was the other one? Oh, franchises mm. what is a franchise that you would recommend mm. the most um so i'll go off the beaten track slightly and i will recommend the creep franchise which is really easy to get into because there's only two films in it and it's streaming on Netflix. So as long as you've got a Netflix subscription, you can watch them for free. Um, And they're fantastic. They're low budget two handers with a really basic premise. Um, So the, the hook for the first film is a guy has been diagnosed with a terminal condition and he wants to film a professional goodbye video for his kids. So he puts out an ad and a guy who's a sort of amateur documentary maker takes him up on it because, you know, it's a good way to make a lot of cash very, very quickly. Um, and you know from the first five minutes that there's something shady about the setup because the guy lives in a cabin in the middle of the woods. And the first thing the filmmaker sees when he turns up there is an axe um, buried in a in a log. And, you're, and he's like, you know, oh, should I be uh, should I be nervous? But the guy, when he meets him, is you know really nice a little bit quirky but really nice but you know things start to to raise a few flags and there's definitely some you know oh not too sure about this moments um but it raises the question which is how far should pity for another human being and basic human decency and the desire to think the best of people take you how many red flags and how much iffy behavior should you let slide before you say do you know what <laughs> no thanks i'm heading out the door here and how do you even begin to handle that situation you know given that if someone hasn't done something this explicitly awful it's going to land as quite socially awkward um so i won't say anything more than that because like the magic of the films is is seeing how that that situation unfolds and and what happens um but i would say it's if if your interest in the genre is more around its ability to explore touchy subjects and to look at it kind of like I alluded to at the beginning as a, as a toolkit for handling, handling situations that might roll up. It's definitely a very, very valuable one, not least because the serial killer Ted Bundy caught a great many of his victims by feigning an injury. So his, his classic thing is he would be struggling with a box of things while he was trying to lean on a crutch and move things towards his car. And some good Samaritan would come across and say, oh, let me help you with that. 
and he'd say, oh, great, you know, help me to my car over there. I'll pop the boot open for you. And then, boom, they'd chloroform them and stuff them in. Um, so, yeah, not that I would uh, I would uh, advocate extreme paranoia and not going out of your way to help people. But, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting exploration of um, of of that, I would say. For me, I really feel like... So, this is where my love of slasher films really kind of derails my ability to recommend a good horror <laughs> franchise to watch as an introductory. Um, so, take my recommendations for specific films far great with a far larger grain of salt than this because <laughs> they're not necessarily going to be super good introductory ones. Um, but... If I had to pick an introductory slasher franchise for people to watch, it would definitely mm -hmm. be the Scream ones. Mm -hmm. Nice. Because they're not overly, like, gory. They're not overly bloody. Um, there is that element of, like, well, who's done it? Like, who's coming after me? So if you like kind of um, more of the true crime stuff, Scream would probably be a good parallel or as close yeah. as you're probably going to get in a slasher f series. Um but like we said, there's always it's a killer. It's a different killer every time. It's a different person who is Ghostface. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a very iconic series. It's a very iconic mask. The Ghostface masks are all, all over the place. Um, but I think it would be a good if you were interested in trying to watch slasher films with uh, without wanting all of the overt gore that takes place in like Saw, Friday the Thirteenth, mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street. Scream is a good one. Yeah, I would absolutely, I would absolutely agree with that, and very, very fitting that um, that it came originally from Wes Craven, who had helmed A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so thank you for joining me today, Michael. I've absolutely loved having this conversation because it's not very often I get to talk about all of my love for horror films, um, <laughs> especially considering that those of you who are longtime listeners will know that we did an episode about two years ago for Halloween where we did discuss horror movie tropes. Um, so if you want a super like in-depth idea on some horror movie tropes in specific how specifically how it relates to domestic and sexual violence prevention, that episode I kind of quiz my co-hosts on different horror tropes and how it relates. Um, the Final Girl is end up being one that we do talk about. Uh, but because they have no idea about any horror movies because they both don't watch them, it was very nice to be able to do this episode with you, Michael. So I appreciate you joining me for this. No, no, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I feel your pain. My uh, my wife is not a big fan of uh, horror films either. And every October, I uh, I try and watch a horror film every night, and I have no one to talk to about them afterwards. So uh, yeah, <laughs> this is made up for for what what awaits me this October. Yeah, uh, same goes for me. I am as soon as we're done here, I'm pretty much done with work for the day. So I'm throwing on Saw in the background while oh. I go and do stuff. <laughs> nice. I'm going to be playing Resident I... Evil Three myself. Uh, excellent. Well. Thank you again, Michael, and thank you all for listening today. I realize this is definitely going to be one of our longer episodes that we have done. <laughs> so hopefully you've made it all the way through, and hopefully we're able to keep you entertained long enough to make it this far. But if you have listened this long, um, I appreciate it, and thank you. Um, if this is also something that more that you would like to see in terms of content for this podcast, please let us know, because this is definitely something I would be more than happy to continue doing. Um, but again... Thank you. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Touchy Subs Pod. Please send us any questions, comments, or concerns to Touchy Subjects Podcast at gmail.com. And please rate us and follow us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. 
And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.